as an entrepreneur, you don't get any of that. And so you need to look for things and push yourself to self-grow. Because if you're not going to be growing yourself, then the business is not going to be growing with you either. Although our episode was recorded some time ago, as you know, all of these are, there's a couple of exceptions, but anyways, much of what I learned from my guest, Sylvia Myers, continues to resonate with me rather strikingly from her background story, which I will not do the injustice of summarizing to her characterization of these two conflicting archetypes, one trapped in analysis paralysis and the other treating risk-taking like it's their profession and also her growth quadrant. Among all of those, I'm left with a prevailing sense of gratitude for this platform and the opportunity it gives me, an opportunity I am delighted to now share with you. Sylvia Myers, it is good to have you here on Ecomonics. It's an honor to meet you. Uh, I know it's, it's early for you. Um, so, so thank you so much for being here. How are you doing this fine morning? Uh, hi, Joseph. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing really good. Thanks. Just um, had my breakfast and ready to go. Excellent. Well, I, I wanted to, um, to, to commend you for the material that you had supplied uh, for my sake to help put, put this episode together. Some people, they'll provide, you know, white sheets, they'll, they'll, they'll bring up talking points. So it's not the first time it's happened, but given that this was more of a fast track recording and we wanted to jump into it uh, sooner rather than later, I, I feel like I'm, I'm already learning about how you, you know, how you do things, how you conduct your business based off the thought that you put into this, despite the short notice. So, so for that, I say, thank you. No worries. Welcome. Also, I'm just going to be I'm just gonna be transparent with, with my audience here. Um, Sylvia and I, we, we talked for like 20 minutes before we turned on the recording. It's jarring to have to like switch gears and go, okay, well, now the recording is on. Now it's the podcast voice. Uh, would that I could just perfectly seamlessly transition from, you know, talking prior to to talking on the recording. I would. But, you know, we, we do the best we can with what we got. All right. Opening question. Tell us what you do. Tell us what you're up to these days. So I am uh, essentially an e-commerce um, coach or a mentor. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur as well. And I help online retailers who essentially struggle to take their store to the next level. I help them um, improve profits and, and grow. And I help them run their store profitably because what I found is that lots of online retailers and lots of people in the e-commerce space don't struggle just with making sales, but like that's the first thing that they struggle with. But then later on, they really struggle with actually making money and keeping the business sustainable. Because I, I hear that that term, um, I'm struggling. I think what that uh, speaks to is the state of mind that a lot of people are in, and yeah, it doesn't it doesn't come up all the time. I mean, a lot of the people that I talk to, you know, they they help out, and people have. Uh, different reasons for it. So when when people are are coming to you, what are some of the things that they're they're struggling? Are it consistent reasons? Does it vary from person to person? Do you notice patterns and what it is that compels people to reach out to you? Yeah, that's a very good question. So I guess it depends on what stages they're at, right? So we've got some entrepreneurs who are at the beginning of the e-commerce journey, and their question is all about like sales. How do I make sales? Because that's kind of the problem they're facing, right? Um, and usually this is what we call our, the entrepreneurs in what we call the, the first quadrant. In uh, We've got this power grid and and uh, essentially this is the first quadrant is the entrepreneurs who, uh, who are turning over between zero to 5,000 per month. And normally their biggest struggle is like, how do I make sales? How does this work? 
I'm getting traffic, but I can't convert it to sales. Like, please help me out. Um, and then we've got the guys who are kind of between the tw- five and 20. And uh, that's kind of the second stage of, of the power grid. And typically they are like, well, I am making sales here. You know, I might be making 15, I might be turning over 15,000 per month, but so what? Like I've been putting all of this work into that and I can't really see the light at the end of the tunnel. Like I'm, I'm making sales. I'm not making any money. What am I doing wrong? You know, what is it that I need to do? What is it? What is it? What is the problem? So they kind of have that machine that's kind of going and, you know, there's the momentum, but they understand there is some sort of a problem, but they don't know what it is and they don't know how to fix that. Um, After that comes what we call the third quadrant. And that's um, usually, usually stores that are kind of up to 50,000 per month. And for them, it's more like, well, I do want to bring this to the next level, but I'm right now really struggling with my time. So how do I do that? Like, how do I even get there? And then we've got the stores that are then in the what we call the fourth quadrant, and that's kind of uh, getting to the mark of the hundred hundred thousand a month. And for them, it's more like, well, what what does the next level of growth look like for me? And what is it that I need to start doing differently to what I'm doing right now to help me get there? And again, to help me get there profitably and sustainably without going crazy. Uh, because essentially, you know, as entrepreneurs go through that journey, um, each and every one of them realizes over time that, you know, the the journey doesn't happen overnight. And it's not always, you know, sunshine and roses. And, you know, lots of entrepreneurs start their store because they want that freedom. They want to live life on their terms. However, sometimes over time, the business, you need to feed the business more than the business feeds you. And so throughout this journey, it's not just about your store growing, but it's about the entrepreneur as a personality growing to become that CEO, CEO of their business and of their life as well, ultimately, right? Because it's like, well, you know, all of us like, hear of these great CEOs out there in all these companies, but it's not like there is a school for CEOs, right? So nobody tells you like, what do you need to do? How you need to do it? What do you need to delegate? And so it's kind of like an ongoing journey through um, what we call the four quadrants or that's, uh, that's, I guess, at at the core of our methodologies that power grids, you know, like, um, you know, the different stages and the different struggles people are going through. And not just the struggles, but also the questions as to, you know, what does that the next level look like for me? How do I get there? That is a, a great answer to the question. What sticks out to me, especially, and it, it really came to fruition, I would say in the third quadrant, which is when the, the entrepreneur has to start, I suppose, uh, learning to delegate and recognizing that their time is going to become exponentially more valuable in certain areas and decreasingly valuable in others. Like to, to use a rather um, rote example would be if they're still doing customer service, right? If they're still, you know, going through the, the, the emails, even doing chat, something like that is now disproportionately not valuable considering all of the other things that they have to do. So with that, what really stuck out to me is, and 
you know, I don't recall every last thing that was said on this program up to this point as much as I try to, but what's I think distinct here is there's also that personal development that I think has to happen in each of these four quadrants. The entrepreneur has to grow somewhat as a person between part one, part two, part two to three, and then three to four, and then and then beyond. Am I onto something here? And have you noticed a change in the personality and in, in the mindset and their habits, maybe even like what they eat for breakfast to actually get them to run a business in those uh, uh, higher quadrants? Yeah, hundred percent. There is a there is a huge difference, and I and I guess if I can wind that back a little bit, um, it's kind of think about it as starting your career, right? So you typically start your career, you know, either you're a fresh graduate or you finish school, whatever, you know, wherever you start, and you don't necessarily start and and say, hey, I'm now a CEO of a of a big, sturdy, well-established company. You start somewhere as a junior, right? I even I even remember in, in my first graduate job day, you know, my supervisor even used to call me junior. You know, he wasn't even calling me like with my name. He was just saying junior. He was used and, to addressing uh, people based on the title. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it was more of a joke. Like oh, okay. like no, we had a we had a very good relationship, but it was it was just a joke because I guess I was like the, the kid in, in the in the team at the time. And so, you know, he he loved having like the banter of of calling me a junior. And, you know, what I meant to mean to say by that is that we are kind of groomed to some sort of a career, right? So like you go to school, you go to university, then you start your, you know, first job, you've got a supervisor. Um, and that supervisor tells you like, this is your job description. This is what you need to do. And this is how we're going to measure your success. And with these indicators, once you hit the number and the number is going to be here, you're either going to get bonus or you're going to be promoted. You know, you're also being told what department are you in? Like, it's clear, you know, you're in sales or you're in marketing or you are in accounting, wherever you are. And you are also being told what department are you not? Like, hey, dude, you're not HR. You're not making decisions about HR. However, you know, our biggest customer, internal customer is IT, you know, so like all of these things are given to you. And then, you know, your manager has a manager and the manager has a manager and the manager has a manager and it goes forever until there is a CEO, right? Over time, like it becomes clear to you and you and you learn, you know, step-by-step, step-by-step over time until eventually you are like, okay, I got this. I can run not even the business, but I can run this one little section of this business. But when you are an entrepreneur and you are starting your e-commerce store, Nobody tells you any of this stuff. Nobody gives you a job description. Nobody tells you what departments you've got, who you need to interact with, and what are the success measures, right? Um, you are not being told like, okay, this year, you know, these are your skills we want you to improve. And next year, these are the skills we want you to improve. You know, like in a corporate world, you, like you always get those objectives and they're like, well, this year, you know, we're working on your, you know, stakeholder management. And, you know, next year we're working on your productivity or ability to organize or blah, 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 you know. But as an entrepreneur, you don't get any of that. And so you need to look for things and push yourself to self-grow. Because if you're not going to be growing yourself, then the business is not going to be growing with you either. And, you know, going back to your original question, like 100%, I've seen a huge correlation 
between how businesses start and when they end up. And it's very much tied to the growth of that business owner, of that entrepreneur. And I've seen some guys who have done really well at the beginning, but then when didn't really push themselves to grow further. And so some guys who looked like they were going to be superstars didn't end up making it. You know, there were some guys who were like, um, you know, going from zero to 30K a month, like very, very quickly, but then couldn't break through because they just didn't have what it takes and weren't willing to learn for it. And then we had some guys who, you know, got stuck at the beginning and then eventually pushed through and, you know, continued on the journey. So in my opinion, it's not like one thing. It's about that massive, imperfect action on a regular basis, like every day. Like what are you, what are you doing with yourself? How do you show up? Um, you know, the, you asked me like, what is, what is one of the main things, you know, do they eat something for breakfast? I don't necessarily think it's so much eating something for breakfast as much as the accountability. It's like, okay, it's not my business is my business. It's my baby. I am responsible for feeding it. I am responsible for keeping it alive. I am responsible for bringing it to fruition and, you know, bringing it up as, as if you were bringing up your child, I guess. And, you know, it's my accountability to do that. And I think what I found is that entrepreneurs who end up struggling are the ones who don't have that accountability, who just, you know, end up wanting a magic pill or like, just fix it for me. Like, Sylvia, just fix it for me. Or just, or just give me this or just do this for me. Or I'm just going to find an agency who's going to do sales for me. You know, I've, I've seen like, hundreds and hundreds of entrepreneurs who just wanted the agency to do the Facebook and Google ads for them without having a clue what they're outsourcing. You know, nobody's going to run business, the business for you. I think that's the bottom line. Like that accountability, I, I think that's where it all starts. That's an incredible take on it. And there's a number of things to um, definitely uh, extract from that. So one of them is an in, in, in earnest, this was something that was a little bit later down in the uh, in, in the list of questions, but I'm happy to um, uh, weave it in now rather than later. Is one of the things that, you know we talked about even before we were recording is you know your your desire to be free so that you can do things on your terms rather than on the terms of this person who on the terms of this person on the terms of this person. And I don't think that there is a motivating factor that is any more potent or any more uh, fundamental to, to the entrepreneur's desire than, than freedom. It's the the more I see it, the cornier it gets, but uh, I, I mean it in, in all sincerity. So what I think is happening is people, they, they hit that roadblock and they, and they want the things done for them. And in doing so, have somewhat condemned themselves to not being not being free, to continue to rely on structure to to, to guide them. Because in, in order to be independent, you have to devise your own structure. You have to be able to set your own rules. And as you say, you have to be accountable. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, you know, and I guess the structure is something that we help entrepreneurs with, you know, 100 percent I guess we have recognized over time that there is no structure, right? Like you've got things like coming at you right front and center, but 
that structure is so important, but that structure doesn't go without that accountability, right? So kind of those two need to go together because somebody can give you a structure, but you still need to be accountable for your business and firstly, mostly also to your customers, right? So, um, you know, I, I found that lots of entrepreneurs start a business because they do want to be free, but that business can only exist if you've got an offer that's appealing to a certain group of people who are your customers. And, and I think that's, you know, once you start drilling through that, that's another uh, part where I think in the e-commerce world, because it's all online and, you know, we've got numbers and we've got facts, which is amazing and which is what I love, but sometimes we forget that every click or a lack of it has a person, a human being at the other side. And I think, you know, that that is something e-commerce store owners and particularly the ones starting out, like they need to recognize this. This is This is a human being on the other side. So what am I doing for them? What am I delivering? Yeah. So one of the um, uh, one of the points that I had written down is so when someone is in a uh, is in is in a company structure, um, and, and let's just say that you know customers are are involved as they often are, there is a tension between um, being of service to the customers, but also being of service to well the other people in in the company, namely the the, the people above, and you know. Bearing in mind that I'm in a company right now, but I, they they give me a great great deal of freedom to, to to do things on my own time. So, you know, I'm 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 learning as I go how to be more entrepreneurial. You know, uh, as uh, as time goes on. So I just want to be uh, transparent about that because uh, if I don't point out the irony, somebody else will. Anyways, so what I think what happens is a lot of their ability to to grow and have a a sense of progression is, and as you've described based off the metrics provided by by the company. Now, when you're, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, that's no longer there as you say, but what is there continue is the is the customers. And I used to make this argument, I don't make it anymore um, because my my mind was changed on a little bit, but I used to say that in this sense, your boss which used to be one person is now fragmented out into thousands if not tens of thousands because in one way your customers are your bosses. They're the ones that are, you know, paying you and I, I, I shifted a little bit on that because it really it, it comes down to being of service to others. And so, yeah, I could still say that they're bosses, but in reality, you know, you are a service to your customers. So what I want to ask is if there is a, a parallel um, where the customers have the ability to influence the growth of the entrepreneur in the same way that your bosses or your, your managers or the CEO might also influence your growth. There, at first, it's a yes or no question, but it's also about, you know, have you seen this? Have you seen customers really guiding people based off their demands and their wants and helping the the, the sellers grow into the, the further quadrants? Mm-hmm. This is a very good question. Very good question. Thank you. I will um, around it. Yeah, I, I would say yes, I have seen that, uh, but it doesn't happen in a way how we expect it. What we expect in that kind of continuous improvement cycle is that, you know, we put out that minimum viable product, let's say, and then you get feedback from your customers and then you improve it and, and so on and so forth. So I guess what I was trying to say, and this typically happens in software development, right? 
that you put out a minimum viable product, you get feedback, you improve it, and you know you test demand and all of that type of stuff. Now in e-commerce, it works slightly differently in in my opinion. So yes, hundred percent, you are being guided by customers as to what's coming next, but you are not being necessarily verbally guided. It's more about understanding what their feedback is through through certain behavioral patterns. You know, all of us understand that there is a click-through rate or all of us in marketing, in the marketing world, we talk about click-through rates and we talk about average order values and we talk about conversion rates. And, you know, each and every one of us can like Google, like what's the best, you know, what's the average conversion rate or what's the best practice conversion rate or what's the best practice open rate, you know, on an email or click-through rate on an email. And, and these are just numbers, you know, but when you put them together, they're telling you a story. And I think this is what is really important for e-commerce store owners to understand that this story congruently is a story told by your customer. And it's, and it's really a beautiful story that you can easily adapt to if you start watching what it is, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, one of the things that I, I find, particularly the starting entrepreneurs struggle with, is even understanding the buzzword funnel. You know, like how many of us have walked into a store, like we do this all the time. We go and walk into the store and and you walk in, you have a look what they have. Sometimes you even touch things, sometimes you even try them on, sometimes you even ask about the price. And then you walk out like in a shopping mall, it happens all the time, right? But somehow in the e-commerce world, we expect the person to come in, walk in, try it on, and then pull out the wallet and buy straight away. So why do we expect a customer to do do that online if they're not doing that offline, right? So essentially, I guess the first thing that you know, one needs to understand is that it's not a square in terms of like one visitor does not equal one customer. You know, it's a funnel. You need to have multiple visitors to get a few customers. And the more visitors, the more high quality visitors who actually are interested you get, the more sales you're going to make at the bottom. And in in this way, it's it's throughout this continuous process that a customers can lead you to understand what you need to correct and what is right and and you know what they like, but also what they don't like. And B, it also helps you understand how relevant you are and actually grow your business and grow yourself as a result, because you get to understand the patterns, like what is what are the patterns here? What is it that I'm that I'm looking at? What is it that the customer actually wants and how can I do it better? This was uh, something that was a pretty significant eye-opener for me uh, in, in looking um, you know, through some of our uh, preliminary material is you know, when, you, when you talk about customer behavior in a store, and, and I should mention, by the way, you know, I've been in, in the retail um, uh, sector for, uh, for, for a while. You know, I've, I, I've paid my dues in that. And quick aside, 
I, we, we, you know, one of the things that they would track is actually foot traffic. Every time somebody walked in, the, the timer would go off. And so they, 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 I mean, they didn't think that every person who walks in was going to turn it into a sale, but they were measuring is, you know, the, the average and the value of it. And, and it's, and, and I, and I don't regret doing any of it because it was interesting to experience the pressure that a seller or an employee is under when the human behavior is supposed to translate into accurate data, but there's this nebulous territory where it doesn't factor in everything. And like somebody says, Oh, you know what? Uh, my wallet's in my car. I'll be right back. The data doesn't tell yes. you that story. Um, so, so getting back to the question that I wanted to ask is you, you describe that customer behavior is actually less honest in person than it is online. And, and, I'll, and I'll, and I'll start it off, but then I'd love to hear you expand on this. So brief example, somebody walks in and they say, uh, I'm just browsing. But in actuality, they're actually ready to commit. They just want to be left alone. Or, you know, they, they, they're thinking of buying. And so they end up using the salesperson's time for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, but then they, 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 they didn't commit and, and they weren't really even be truthful with themselves, let alone the, the, the seller. And, and there's this intersection between the pressure that sellers are under in order to, you know, convert the pressure that the store is under to keep the lights on, the pressure of the mall. And, and all of that really influences customers' behavior. So I don't blame people when they say just browsing. So I used to say like, oh, so what's on the mind? Just try to like, you know, just talk to them and not immediately jump into trying to, trying to sell them something like that. But on the other side, when you have online behavior, um, people are, you know, they're, it's a much more intimate setting. They're on the computer, they're on the phone, and they're just minding their own business. And unless you're like me and, you know, you, you, I wear a tinfoil, you know, I'm a tinfoil hat kind of guy. So I kind of assume I'm being spied on. Most people, believe, you know, believe that their, their actions are completely unto themselves. So that's, my, that's some of my takeaway. But let me, let, me, let me summarize this so I can actually uh, turn it into a tangible question is, can you uh, expand on the truthfulness of online behavior versus the uh, unfortunate but dishonest behavior that comes from uh, shopping in uh, in the offline sector. Yeah. So essentially, you know, think about it. You already, you know, you already mentioned a little bit of that. You walk inside a store and you say, you know, I'm just browsing or I'm just doing whatever. Often, I guess, when you have that face-to-face -face contact, it's hard to give people real feedback, right? Like. Like how many times, and you know, I'm sure like, you know, lots of people could relate to this. Like you go into a store, you try on something and then you try it on and you might kind of like it, but it's not it. Then you look on the price tag and you're like, man, this is way too expensive. And in the meantime, like you've got the, you've got the person knocking on the door. How are we going? You know, how is the size? Oh, and then you open the door. Let me see you. Oh, this looks gorgeous on you. And it's like, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. But you're not going to say F off. It doesn't. You know, you're not going to say that because you don't know that person. You know, that that person is really lovely. They're trying to do their job. And all you're trying to do as a, as a shopper is just get the hell out of there, you know, because this is that point where, you know, now you've lost that. Now you've lost that kind of connection. And now it's becoming a little bit uncomfortable for, you know, a human being. So you're not going to keep like walking around the store and, you know, trying on more stuff. Or, you know, I'll give you another example. Like you go to a store and then you put 50 things inside your basket. Like, 
walking out of that store and just placing that basket on the floor and running away, like that would be quite uncomfortable, right? And so because of this human discomfort, we just come up with excuses. We just, you know, either don't even go into that store. Like I even remember my dad, like he's, he's be shy and he just wouldn't even go into a store if he thought there were too many shopkeepers in there. Cause he's like, Oh, and then they're going to ask me and I don't know what I'm going to say. Uh, cause I'm not even a communicative person. So I'm just not going to do that. Um, and so essentially you think you're getting real feedback and lots of, lots of the times, you know, physical retailers, when, you know, the push came in with the pandemic that all of them had to go online, some of them saw it as a disadvantage, you know, because they were like, we know our customers, we can talk to them, we can help them. And yet, 100%, like that human touch, if you have an ideal customer coming through the door physically, you know, into a physical store, that human touch, like that is priceless. However, online, we don't have any of that BS stuff. You know, like I'm just browsing, I'm not talkative, I this dress is too expensive. You can really just start watching the patterns and, and the patterns are in those key simple metrics. Um, but the trick is not to get overwhelmed and not to start looking at everything and anything. But the trick is just to start looking at few little points. Like I'll give you, I'll give you an example, bounce rates in e-commerce, super important, super important. Because what we found through, you know, working with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stores is that ideal bounce rates for checkout are somewhere in the 60s. You know, you go above that, they're walking into the store and bouncing right out because they're like, yeah, nah, I don't like this. You, you've got something below that, you know, if it's in the 40s or 50s, then they're probably just browsing and browsing and browsing, but you're not giving them a reason to actually, hey guys, it's, it's business time now. You're not giving them a reason to check out or they just get lost or they might not even be the right audience. So obviously, you know, the numbers slightly differ based on, you know, what products you're selling and so on and so forth. But, you know, for the vast majority, for the most part, and of course you need to, you need to correlate it with other, other numbers in your store, but you know, for the vast majority, like what's your bounce rate? If you, if if it's in the 60s, you know, have a look how it correlates with your conversion rate. Like like those two, bounce rate and conversion rate, direct correlation. I wanted to um, just make a few points just about the uh, about the retail experience because you know I, I like to harp on it, but there are you know there 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 are positives to it too, um, such as what you described with being able to help people directly. What I would say is probably one of the best uh, retail experiences that I had lately um, was um, shout out to Casper Mattresses. We had just you know we were in the market for a mattress and we and we went to the store and they understand that most of their business is conducted online anyways. So their job was to really just market the mattress. And yeah, you know, you get some conversions here or there, which is great, but they understood that the purpose of this is to actually move their brand from strictly an e-commerce brand into a conventional brand. And so, and then that way, you know, funnel traffic to online. So it was about, you know, melding the, the strengths of both. And, and that is where I'd like to see, and to my audience, and especially to my video editor, sorry about the lighting, I'm just... Uh, 
learning the new the new camera. It's a little uh, overreactive, like me. Uh, but anyways, that's what I'd like to see happen to retail is you know just focus on the human connection, focus on the uh, on on the pure marketing. Yeah, you don't convert, but you have everybody having a positive experience. And, and that's kind of where I want to see it. So I just wanted to kind of like wrap up that point uh, about retail, um, you know, just to give both sides a, a fair shake. It's just, if I may add to that, that is only possible if you reverse that, right? So lots of physical stores kind of had that online as a backup. So this is the other way around. So if you're doing it the other way around, 100%, you know, like like some of the most successful online furniture stores have done that, you know, they started online first and then later on they build a showroom. But it's an opposite model to a store that started as a physical store and is having troubles to convert it to the online world. Getting back into to metrics, uh, because I think this is you know really really where your expertise is uh, is, is going to be most appreciated by our audience. So um, we're we're, we're going to circle back to some of the you know the opening threads here, which is so somebody they they exit the corporate structure, they're going to make it out on their own, and naturally the logical thing to start is sales as like the key metric for them to go off of. And so um, so you've touched on a, a bounce rate. Um, and what I'd like to uh, continue on here is the metrics that are key to identify before the sales start rolling in. Yeah, great question. And and for those guys who are starting out, I would say those those guys don't even watch bounce rate, right? Because for those guys who are starting out, what you need to understand is like what goes into that sale. You know, it's kind of like baking a chocolate cake, measuring how many sales you got. It's like measuring how many perfect chocolate cakes did you bake but that chocolate cake is like as, as a result of something right like you've got the ingredients you have to put in milk and and sugar and butter and eggs and flour and chocolate whatever goes inside the chocolate cake and then it goes through the cooking process in the oven right and then it's all about like how long you cook it for what temperature is it on fan force or not fan force then you know blah 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 you might even put some final touching like icing or whatever. And then you've got the chocolate cake. And so what uh, online retailers really need to understand is that the same is with sales, like the sales, that's the output, but there is a process and there is input that goes inside to that, right? And so firstly and foremostly, it's all about like how, you know, how much traffic are you getting to your store? And is the traffic of high quality are those people actually people who are likely to be buying or are you just attracting a random group of people just so that you can say you had visitors to your store because there is a fundamental difference, right? And and particularly when you're a small business, you know, where you spend your budget and how you spend it, crucially important. You know, what I found is that entrepreneurs often start with i guess modeling brands they know but modeling brands we know are brands like you know coca-cola or uh you know unilever or whatever big brands they are and and these big brands typically start with what uh, i call the billboard strategy you know like you just randomly have a billboard on a freeway and you don't know who you're gonna get 
but that's okay because they can afford to do that billboard on that freeway. But as a small business, you can't afford to do that. And uh, so firstly, and mostly you need to start looking at your audience. So, you know, where is your audience coming from? Um, how are you driving that audience to your store? Are you driving just like random audience or is this audience actually set up for conversion? Like, is this a conversion audience? Are these people who are looking to buy? If I may, one thing I wanted to to touch on, I think, because Coca-Cola, I mean, I bring it up. I, and I, you know, my examples, I tend to go with pretty mainstream stuff, just you know, so everyone's on the same page. And what I think is also um, distinctive about what they're able to do is, yeah, I mean, yes, they want to sell cans. But I think beyond that, what they're also aiming to do is really cement themselves as part of the lifestyle of, of, of culture. So even if somebody doesn't want to drink soda, or maybe they, they, they like soda, they just don't want to drink Coke, they don't know, they want to drink Pepsi. And now there's a cultural clash between Coke versus Pepsi and actually gives people uh, an extra uh, facet to their personality, a small one, but these things, they add up You're coming from, from, the, from the gamer space, you know, the, don't get me started on the console wars. Now that, that was, that was a whole thing that made school a lot harder than it should have been. So one thing that I'm, I'm, I'm curious about and, and this is more like a speculative question, but I'd really like to hear your take on it. Um, as I mentioned how, say, Casper Mattress, for instance, um, are, are working on bridging the gap between e-commerce and, and, and just conventional commerce, is have you seen um, either you know, by your own uh, a hand or even by some of the people that you're studying under, or even just through osmosis, through you know, people that you, you speak to and people that you've, uh, uh, some of your colleagues, have you seen brands come up with a strategy to really pass the e-commerce threshold and into the more conventional threshold? Because in my view, I think that is a goal that a lot of brands want to have, which is, you know, we want to be cemented in, in society. We want to be uh, recognized. We want to be part of people's lifestyle because then we're, people are marketing us just by having conversation. Have I seen brands? Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure I have. Um, I can't name any off the top of my head, but um, I'm just thinking of some of the like uh, online mattresses as well as you mentioned too. There is a big brand in Australia called Koala. Uh, they started online, and uh, you know it's definitely becoming. They're still in, the, I guess, in the officially startup stage, but in a huge, huge startup stage. Um, another uh, online online retail store uh, in Australia is Temple and Webster. Um, they sell furniture. So definitely started as an online business, um, you know, becoming a, a a really a household brand, one of the fastest growing retailers. Uh, and the same Wayfair in the US and and you know and and the UK markets. I mean, they also started online as as far as my understanding goes. Um and really became a household brand. So um hundred percent, like hundred percent, I I am sure that there is like dozens and dozens and dozens or hundreds more that I could name, but I just don't have any prepared right now. I could get back to you on that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and no worries. It was, uh, yeah, it just, um, even the ones that off the top, off the top of your head, like even Wayfair, see yeah, Wayfair is an interesting example because there is an example of one that I would have just kind of taken for granted, like that they have been around for a while. So there, there's a, there, there's an insight there about, you know, position yourself as, you know, we've always been here. What do you, what do you mean? We didn't, we didn't just start as a line. We've always been here. We just, yeah, anyways, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. 
Or actually, there is one more example that I just that I just remember. Uh, do you guys know um, in Canada Agbut? Have you heard of Ag- Agbut, which is U-G-G. in Australia? UGG, yeah. I, I I know the Agbuts. Yeah, they they come up. <laughs> yeah, I've got pink ones. Um, <laughs> anyway, I love my stickers. So, uh, but that's also a traditional brand. I mean, they probably went the other way around, but it's also a traditional brand that is mainly online these days. You know, like they've got maybe four stores around the world. That's it. Like majority of the sales come online. This is just pretty personal, but let's just say hypothetically, I wanted to buy that as a gift for certain someone. You like them? They're comfortable? Yeah, they're very comfortable. Okay. I, okay. This was, these ones are brand new. I just got them yesterday. Uh, yeah, very, very comfy and warm. And uh, these ones are very bright, which is my thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I had to get that out of my system because uh, there's always a gift that has to be bought at some point. Anyways, so um, so getting back on track here. So one of the next things that we wanted to to also cover is, you know, you have we have our data points, um, we have our metrics, um, but analysis is the next uh, limiting factor for a lot of people. And what we what I what we talk about in in the material that uh, we were looking to looking at prior to is you have these two extremes. So on the one hand, you have, I mean, either they don't have any data and they're just, I don't know, rolling the dice or they have the data, they can't make sense of it. So they just roll the dice. And this is the gambling extreme. And the other extreme is uh, the analysis paralysis where they have the data, they either, they don't know what to make of it or they constantly feel like they don't have enough. So uh, can we go through these and, and discuss, I guess, the corrective method in either case and how they can center themselves? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Okay, so... This is, I guess, one of the behaviors or some of the behaviors that we observed uh, that we've got. We even, as everything in our method that we teach, we split that into, uh, I guess, quadrants. And and these are also entrepreneurial behaviors. So uh, we've identified that we kind of have four uh, entrepreneurial behaviors. So one of them, and and I'll touch on each of them, but one of them is what we call the gambler. The, The second one is what we call the graduate. And then we've got the expert. And then we've got a CEO. And so essentially a gambler, a gambler has huge advantages. A gambler has an advantage because they take action. They're like, yeah, I'm taking the leap of faith and I'm taking action. Now, unfortunately, the problem with a gambler is that they are taking action on something that they don't know what they're doing, right? So I I guess lots of entrepreneurs that we work with, you know, they're at that stage where, you know, they they have started to make some sales. Uh, but now there are all of these screens they are looking at because lots of our lots of our um, lots of the entrepreneurs we work with, you know, they're they're product makers as well, or they could be product inventors. And so suddenly they see these screens, and it's like, oh my god, what are these screens? You know. So uh, for some people, the easiest thing is to like just close the window because it's like, oh my god, I just cannot deal with these screens. Like, what is going on? Uh, some people just go like into a full panic mode, like, oh my God, what am I looking at? What well, some people end up doing, and this is where the gambling comes into swing, is that they're just like, I don't know what this is saying. Let me just take whatever action. I just download all of these apps and I install these apps and I pay these guys and I pay those guys and I'll just like, you know, throw everything, throw everything on it. So that's kind of the gambling, uh, the gambling. Uh, behavior, but again, let's let's just point out that the massive advantage of a gambler is at least they're taking action, but it can be really expensive, right? Now, 
the second type of behavior that that we've got is what we call the graduate and that's a person who literally like takes like magnifying glass and it's like everything under magnifying glass you know you've got like i've got like four visitors coming to my store and you know often we found that these graduates they like watch them and i watched the customer live and then they went there and then they went there and then this and then they dropped off and as a result, like they're so microscoping everything that they think they have patterns and that they're really smart, but they don't even have patterns because it's like four or 10 visitors. And, you know, they're just like watching them one by one. And then based on that information, they're taking some small action. And this is the problem because when you've got like, when you're, when you think you are making statistically relevant a conclusion, but you are not you might end up changing images and changing pricing. And this is what we see all the time. Like we see all the time, the gamblers and the graduates just forever and forever and ever changing product images, changing pricing, swapping the themes, moving things around, installing apps. And then at the end, they are like, I've tried everything. I've tried everything, nothing worked. But, you know, it's like you haven't really tried everything. You just, mumble things around in these two behaviors so you know either you've been rolling your dice and you've just been doing everything but without any kind of like method or you've been kind of stalling your progress because you've been microscoping on four visitors um and so i guess from that stage we we help people to move into what we call the expert stage and that expert stage is that understanding okay this is how I drive high quality traffic. You know, these are the metrics that I need to watch for, which which I can talk about those metrics too if, if you want. Uh, not sure, you know, how much detail is too much detail. I just don't want people to get overwhelmed either. And, you know, these this is the patterns that I need to watch and this is how I convert. But that expert also has a massive time problem because that expert, and that's normally the third quadrant stage where they kind of have the head on where they believe that they have to do everything because nobody else does it better than them, which is true because nobody else is ever going to be the owner of your business, but you, but at some point you need to value your time more than, than the money you're paying. And at some point you need to, you know, put the leap of faith into others and so on and so forth. And the fourth stage is essentially what are we all aiming for? And that's the CEO, right? That's director head. And so, yeah, essentially the most common are the first two, the gambler and, and, and the graduate who does the analysis paralysis. And, and that's, that's kind of what we want to breach, right? So the way how you breach that is having understanding of what is the minimum number of visitors you want to have coming to your store on a daily basis. And so what we always say is the minimum, particularly if you're in the first quadrant, the minimum you want to have, you want to have is hundred so that you can at least draw some conclusions out of that. But obviously hundreds, uh, hundreds quality visitors. So, you know, there is no point of doing analysis paralysis on your website and, and watching your Shopify analytics. If you are not clear on how to even set up your Facebook ads or your Google shopping ads. I recognize that, you know, uh, we're, we're, we don't have all, all the time in the world. Um, so I mean, I mean, people are welcome to always come back on the program. So uh, what I'm, what we're finding is the more granular stuff is usually saved for like, you know, the second visit or, th- or third visit. So yes, with that in mind, what I wanted to actually commend is 
the the positive quality of the gambler. Yes. Because as you say, you know, these are the people who are actually taking action. And yes. in some way, there to distill that to the fundamental is in some way, anybody who's in entrepreneurship is taking a risk, right? It's, uh, it's, it's, it, it is gambling on informed gambling, but it is taking a risk on doing things our, our own way rather than, you know, adhering to adhering to structure. So there are commendable qualities uh, in there. And that's, and that's just one thing that I wanted to articulate because it's important to uh, not castigate people who happen to be in these, in these roles. They have, there's good, re- there's good reasons to be there. So in, in some way, uh, uh, having that, that will to just go out and be all right with failing is something that pretty much everybody needs anyways. hundred percent. And, and the thing is, and yeah, that's, that's probably what I, um, you know, can stress a little bit more is that hundred percent, the gambler, uh, the gamble takes action, which is fantastic. So they also have lots of energy that they're putting out there. The danger is of course that they run out of money. So they just need to recognize all they need to do is recognize that they're a gambler to put a little bit more structure into that. Now, graduates, the graduate is typically somebody who used to be a gambler. And this is why they are a graduate because they used to be a gambler. And then they went, you know, full 180 and they're like, no, 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 no. Okay, now I'm going to do things the right way. So I'm just going to do analysis paralysis on these four visitors and I need to learn more and learn more and learn more. And this is also a dangerous thing, you know, with with entrepreneurs where they feel like you, they have to go to another school and to another school and to another school and to another school because that, that also um, can start preventing their growth, right? So what we're looking for is, somewhere in between like you know you you've got to be taking action but recognizing that um you know you need a bit more structure into that because otherwise you know you can end up gambling your money away and and which is something by the way you know i have experienced on on you know on my own scheme through my own experience and it wasn't pretty uh let's let's just put it that way um it, it reminds me of um something that I learned in in, in drivers at of all places because they you know they'll they'll show those videos about you know driver behavior and the different you know driver avatars. Aside from you know how to do a turn signal, the thing that really stuck with me after all these years is they're showing some of the different characters that you'll find on a freeway. And one of them is, you know, in respect an, an elderly person. Um, but this person was driving slower than basically everybody else in the freeway was saying, well, I'm just, I'm just trying to be careful. But what was happening was being too careful is actually its own risk because if you are, you're actually a liability to others, uh, the traffic that might need to merge and now you're, you're getting in their way. Um, so there's actually a lot of, uh, a lot of risk to, to being over careful. And I would also, um, make that same association with even having a savings account. I, I love talking about this because, you know, it took me a long time before I started understanding finance. And if you let, if you just let your money sit, it actually loses value over time because of inflation. So you actually have to have a healthy amount of risk really in order to get ahead. Yes, 100%. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, as, as you said, every entrepreneur is taking a risk. So, you know, what are you going to do with the money that you have? You know, are you just going to like slowly be bleeding it? That's essentially is the person who is not taking the risk. Right, because they, you know, if you are not looking at generating any sales, then you're just slowly going to be spending your expenses. Or are you going to put that leap of faith and actually take action? So yeah, hundred percent agree. All right. Well, we've got so we got some time left. Not too much time, but we do got some time. So one of the things that I wanted to uh, also uh, hear about was uh, a case study or two. Um, so there's two that stuck out to me. 
uh, from the ones that you had supplied. So one of them is the bicycle apparel uh, and sports clothes. And oh, I see what I did. I wrote them. I wrote them into both a different. So the bicycle apparel one and then the sports clothes one. So the bicycle one stuck out to me because I saw the increase. Uh, for instance, like two k uh, revenue, and then well, it was a significant more than that. I think it was like a twelve thousand, basically like seventy five hundred per each one k in increase. And the other one was, and this is a, a you know, it's that one of a kind hurdle where you have no revenue and then they have some revenue. I didn't write it down. I think it was like 5.8K. So um, I'd like to hear about what were some of the, um, you know, the limiting factors and what we were able to uh, to do to uh, to clear these, uh, uh, to clear these hurdles, you know, c- considering everything that we've talked about today. Yes, of course, of course. And I just kind of want to point out that, you know, for everybody to understand that there is not one thing, right? There is not one thing. There is no magic pill. It's that massive imperfect action. It's really putting structure into what you've got. And I also want to point out that the, you know, the case studies or the results our our network has generated, they're not mine. They're their results, right? Because we uh, teach them through our methodology. We take them through that step-by-step. We give them tools but it's up to them to take action and up to them to generate their results. And, and the same with these guys, you know, I just want to like put it out there that they've put in like ridiculously hard work to make this happen. And, and, you know, they deserve all of that success hundred percent with, um, you know, with, with everything, uh, on top of that. Um, and so I guess the first one, you know, we, we talked about the back apparel. So this is a, um, this is one of our, amazing, wonderful student. His name is Austin. And yeah, I'm just, uh, you know, so happy just thinking about him because he is just an, an amazing, amazing uh, person, an amazing entrepreneur. You know, he's he's gone through a huge growth journey. He put in so much crazy hard work uh, and he deserves all his success. So when we first started to work with him, I do remember in one of the questionnaires, um, he wrote in like, you know, that they had like $2,000 uh, revenue coming from Facebook. Last time I heard of him, he was turning over about 150,000 per month, which, uh, you know, well done to him. Um, that's, it's an excellent, excellent story. And, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, Austin struggled with, he was very good in understanding his customer. You know, he, he is a, he rides bikes himself. So he knew exactly what apparel these guys needed and how it had to be and you know what are the features of that so he really knew his customer but he struggled to attract the customer and the reason why he struggled to that uh, why he struggled to attract the customer was because he had that little bit of a graduate that analysis paralysis behavior you know i do remember some of his audiences when we first started to work together some of his audiences were like so teeny tiny. He was forever targeting this little, little audience of 40,000 people. And he was like forever recycling those ads in that pool. Uh, and those of you guys who run Facebook ads, you know, you would be able to relate to this. He was having like frequency of 7.5 and he was like struggling. Why am I not able to like grow from this point? Um, and so that was his major, major problem that he was stuck in that analysis paralysis and he just wasn't able to see that bigger vision, you know, that bigger vision of what he's got and how he can, 
you know, what he can do with that and, and what is the next level for him. And so, um, you know, if we, if we kind of speak more strategically, that was his big thing. Like he, you know, had to really step back and see kind of like, this is the potential of my business. This is how it can grow. Um, the market is there. I've got the tools. Um, I've got the wits. I'm not the customer, but this is how I need to go on about that. And first thing was uh, really helping him shape that audience and shape how to drive traffic to that store and then how to keep doing that over and, and over and, and, and spell that from that point onwards. Does, does this answer the question? Like, is this detailed enough or... I guess the the one the the one uh, last thing that I want to ask about that is what was the audience size increased to? So it went from forty thousand to uh, how much did it go to? So I guess when you're targeting people on Facebook, you know, uh, typically what we say you do want to start with an audience somewhere around a million. Uh, so that would have been his first kind of shift, right? Uh, because you know, with with an audience of forty thousand, there is only as much as we can do. It's extremely localized. You know, we are. We are online brands like take the U.S. market alone. You know, there is a difference between having a local shop in a little tiny county somewhere where you just have, you know, the local dude to know about you versus like, bang, advertising to the North American market. Like that is the difference there. And, and often what we found is that entrepreneurs tend to focus on certain locations uh, because, you know, somewhere they heard that there are locations that they have money, you know, and it's like, oh, I heard Texas is quite wealthy. And, oh, I heard, you know, California has money and New York. So then, you know, um, entrepreneurs end up just like picking these little like pockets. Uh, but it's like, it's actually, you know, the targeting the right audience is about the other way around. It's more about you know, don't worry about the locations they're in. Like the country, yeah, but don't worry about the location they're in. Worry about what they're interested in. And we've got the data for that. Like, hello, this is e-commerce. You know, like the location and the demographic, you know, whether they're male or female or, you know, whether they their household income is 70 grand or 150, all that is secondary. Like worry first about what are they interested in. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's definitely a lot to, uh, to absorb. I'm just, I just like give me, give myself a second to, to process it, but, um, there's, there's what I, what I appreciate about your, 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 your answer here is, you know, being able to relate it even to say the difference between a local shop versus, you know, uh, expanding hours into the market. And, and I guess my, my one, uh, um, sticking point for me is I would imagine that location is only important if, location is important. So if say I was selling surfboards, I would want to market to where people are going to be able to use it. And then, you know, not so much in, in the middle where they don't really have, um, have, have water to surf on. So that's just my, my, my take on it is that I do think at times location is important, but I think for something like cycling, it's, well, it, it's pretty well universal. If there's somewhere to ride on, there's, uh, the, there's, there's a, the, there's a market for it. Yes. But going back to the surfboards example, um, Logic tells us that, right? Logic tells us that let's target, you know, areas that are around the ocean where people can actually surf. But then why would you have a skiing shop in Sydney? Why would people be buying ski boots and, and you know, ski gear in Sydney? 
there is there is no snow, there is no mountains here, but people still buy because they still go on those holidays and they right, still okay. fly to Japan and do skiing there. And the same goes to surfing. So what we need to in online advertising, what we need to really understand is do whatever you do best, but leave the algorithm what the algorithm does best, what the algorithm is designed for. Like these algorithms have been designed by some of the smartest coders and smartest marketers on earth. Like you've got to give a little bit of that faith to that algorithm too. And that algorithm is designed to find you that person who is interested in what you're selling. That's that's its core purpose. So why would I waste my precious time and my analysis paralysis and my budget on controlling specifically the location in certain markets? If I can just say, hey, I don't care if they live in the freaking desert. If they love surfing, I might be the only person who is supplying to them. Like how many people are there in remote areas everywhere around the world who love e-commerce because finally they've got the equality. Mm -hmm. Like this is the beautiful thing about online shopping. It gives us all equal access to where previously you might have not had any access at all. Like, Like that's, you know, if you take it to the next level, that's democracy right there. (laughs) right it's like it's like enabling somebody to have equal access regardless of where the hell in the world they are well that's magnificent uh i I, and i'm and i'm glad that i uh that i brought it up just to hear what uh uh, how how you describe that the 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 ability for to to help to help to tell people that they can tell their own stories wherever they happen to be that they as you say they, they love surfing they happen to not be around water they love surfing they'll find water and yeah the, uh, the the very least provide them with the with the surfboards. So that that to me is a fantastic takeaway. Now that Shopify has upgraded to version 2.0, we needed to make sure we were up to speed. So we've released version 4.0 to ensure that we're 100% equipped to take advantage of the 2.0 revolution. If you haven't upgraded your store, head on over. And if you haven't gotten started, now's as good time as any. So as far as the, the time of this goes, I just want to make sure I'm not keeping you longer than I that I get to. Um, how much longer? No, are you, I'm okay. You're okay. Okay. So I'll just run through my uh, our, our our final act agenda here, and then we'll uh, we'll put a bow on this. I, I I would like to just touch on that other uh, case study because um, the, the 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 bicycle apparel one, you know, they were yes. they were selling, but they weren't selling. Um, they they needed to expand, uh, and then the other one, the sports clothes was. They weren't generating any revenue, and now they're able to start generating revenue. So I want to touch on that. And then the other question that I wanted to ask you is um, just you know, for you to touch on your backstory as well. Uh, talk about some of the stuff that we had talked about prior to recording, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap this up. So uh, with that, let's enter the final act. Um, tell us the story of the of the sports clothes um, uh, situation. Yeah, so we've uh, had a couple of we've got few really really successful um, students that we've worked with who. Uh, brought the sports crowds, you know, really quite fast to, you know, about two, three, some of them $6,000 a day. Um, but I'm just going to think of one of one of these guys and how he did it. And again, 
going back, there is no magic pill, right? So all he had was an offer that was attractive to his audience and he was able to drive traffic to that. And, you know, with him, the really, really big part was just to be able to optimize certain parts of the funnel, you know? So essentially uh, the, the, with him, you know, he, he was a very quick learner, you know, very quickly able to understand, okay, I've put this offer out and he was selling sports shorts, uh, you know, the sports shorts with the pockets, you know, how these are the sports shorts really popular with the pockets, uh, where you put like your phone in and you can play basketball and the phone doesn't bounce around. So essentially he, he struck that, um, that trend quite well in terms of, uh, of that, I guess, attractiveness of that offer. And, um, the struggle though was how to optimize all of this. How do I make decisions? Because, you know, let's say I put hundred dollars on Facebook ads. I get some sort of sales back. He was able to see traction relatively fast, but he wasn't able to grow that. And so that's, I think, what we, what we really helped him with. You know, he he was able to make a few first sales first, but he just wasn't like, but then what do I do? And again, there is no magic pill. You know, it's all systematically built up. You know, if if I purely, I believe that if somebody is able to, generate you know ten dollars they're able to generate ten thousand or a million right because once you have that one sale you're able to you, you know there is something in there you've got proof of concept and you are able to multiply that but you just need to keep kind of a lid on that and so with this momentum all he needed was that structure so when you're driving the traffic when you're putting money on facebook like what is it that you need to look at you know, some of the things that I tell uh, entrepreneurs that we work with is always watch your CTR link click through. And this is different to CTR. CTR link click through. I just cannot stress that enough how important that is because those are the people who take action. Those are the people who are interested in what you've got. And based on that number, Facebook also rewards you or punishes you. Because if the number is low, guess what? Facebook is going to say, I don't want you guys advertising in here. Because these guys you are advertising to, they're not interested. So when they're going to be scrolling through the feed, they're going to be annoyed that this guy, this ad is coming up again. And so they're going to punish you for that. And so your cost will exponentially rise if that makes sense i hopefully makes right sense. yeah i mean because because uh, facebook they want to they want there to be some consistency with the user experience um they don't want uh, users to be scrolling through and to find that they're encountering content even if it isn't an, an advertisement is so far removed from the the other level metrics that they have or the level of quality there i mean you're you're competing for attention with people who are sharing their personal stories sharing images clips from TV shows. And so there has to be some um, uh, some efficacy to the ad. Otherwise, Facebook's going to say, look, this is just not up to, to, to speed with our user experience. And that is, well, valuable to us, which makes total sense. Exactly. Because their purpose, their sole purpose is to keep you on the platform for longer. Because the longer you are staying, obviously, the more advertisement space you're creating. That's logic, right? 
And so essentially that's why the CTR link click through is so important for marketers to look at to make decisions. Um, and then of course the the next really important part is like, you know, what how much is your audience costing? Like how much, how much, you know, what, what's the CPM you're getting here? Um, and so with uh this particular uh this particular store and this particular student student that worked with us that was the main thing for him you know how do you make decisions like how how do we help you to build this systematically um and mainly you know he already had that offer so mainly um what we worked on together was really helping him put put it all together right because again there is not one thing it's about putting it together okay like I'm driving traffic now, then what do I do next? Well, next you need to start making some decisions. And these decisions, we're making them based on the link click through. And then we're making them based on how much we're paying for each of these clicks. So that's the first decision. Then we're getting to the website. You know, what is the conversion rate here? You know, if we're having low conversion rates, then you might be having the best best cost per link click you might be having the best traffic for the best price but if you can't convert them there is a hole you know the next part was okay how do we help you to essentially plug those holes in your funnel right so essentially there is leaks and those leaks they they need to be repaired so that was the that was the main main thing with him that really very very quickly got him to uh you know from zero to few thousands a day but one thing I do need to point out though, is that one thing he, uh, one of the challenges he did end up facing afterwards, and that's, I think, is something that online retailers really need to pay attention to, is that sustainability of your business is really that full circle of afterwards, what customer service do you provide and how do you get your customers to come back? Because, you know, you might have the best traffic, you might have a really high conversion rate, if you don't provide great customer service, those refunds, they're going to be coming in. They're going to be biting you, biting you, biting you. And, you know, your business might be looking like, oh, it's so profitable. But if I only, you know, if I only fix this little part, but there is no one little part, like it's a business, right? So that customer service is crucially important because if you don't have that, you're going to be getting a ton of refunds. You're going to be getting complaints. You're going to have to put resources on that. And then essentially that that can be scoring you down on online platforms too. Like Facebook also gets often feedback from the customers. If you get bad reviews, they're going to be scoring you down. So eventually that snowball is going to come crashing on you. And then the last part is like repeat purchase. You know, do you have something to sell them after this? Because if you don't, it's so hard to make money. So hard to make money. Like. We all know that repeat purchase is like six to seven times more profitable, not even cheaper, more profitable than the first sale. So that's something that, um, you know, I always encourage everybody we work with is that guys, like, it's great that you've got this, you know, one, one offer or one product and it's working really well for you. But unless you have something afterwards, unless you have something you can, you can offer to these people, then you don't have a business. You just have one funnel and that's it. No, the word for it. That was uh, magnificent as well. Certainly a, a great deal to take in, but I think it, um, it just speaks to the multifaceted nature of this and that, yeah, as you, as, as, as you've said, 
you know, it's not just about looking for the one solution. It's about understanding what are all the factors in place and what is uh, what is lacking, what is overcorrecting and, and balancing all of it out. So cer- certainly warrants a, um, a an extra listen through, I think, if any one of our, of our audience uh, needs that. I, for one, um, I'm looking forward to checking this episode out again, just to to help myself, you know, continue to uh, to put all this together, and and I think as well too, you know, you have your your seven figure ecom system, and I think that's accessible via just um, signing up by way of email. Is that right? Yeah. So um, anybody who is interested uh, can just check out our website. Our website is sylviamyers.co, so it's not .com, but it's .co. Um, of course, you can you know download a bunch of uh, resources for free. We've got um, a blog in there too. You can download uh, our blueprints as well. Uh, that kind of outlines our methodology and and gives people you know free stuff to get started with and move forward with. Uh, amazing. Well, um, with that, so the last thing, as I said, that I wanted to uh, hear a little bit about too is uh, you know one of my missions on the show is to always try to endear the audience uh, to the guest and uh, and part of that is the the knowledge which you've um, shared a great deal of. But it's also about you know what's you know what's been what your driving factor. So what I think sticks out in you know in your backstory has been you know your yearning for freedom, and and it's and it comes across uh, with nearly everybody that I speak to is you know how important it is for people to be able to have their own uh, choice and their own agency over what it is that they do. So um, what I'd uh, what I'd like to hear about is you know this driving factor. At what point did it manifest in your own life, and you know, and, and get you to where you are today? You know, I I, I guess you know you, I live in Sydney, Australia. You can hear from my accent. I haven't grown up here, and you know, for me, the driving factor. Now looking back, I wasn't aware of that at the time, but it really manifested very early. You know, I got my first job uh, when I was sixteen. Um, it was in McDonald's. You know, I was I was a high school student, and um, um, I would work like after school. I would go to to McDonald's and work a whole shift, and then go home and do my homework and all this stuff. At that time, I was getting a whole one dollar for each hour uh, worked. But anyway, I had to do that because um, my parents divorced when I was very little, and um, you know there just wasn't that much money around. And I was like, okay, I've got to do something. I've got to do better. I have to get. I have to elevate myself out of whatever this is. Um, and it's not that I plan to necessarily go abroad, um, but I guess it would have, it was my, probably my, my mission and my purpose because it just ended up, ended up happening. And I kind of was forced into that. I always strived, um, you know, to do better in life and, and to get a, to get a great education. And one of my big kind of uh, knockbacks was when after high school and I, you know, I went to grad high school that it was like that I got myself in that was selective and all of this stuff, but I didn't get into university um, back home. And the reason why I didn't get in was because um, I failed the German test. And I was like, oh my God, I failed the German test. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And um, somewhere I heard this like great idea is that, oh, did you know you can actually like, uh, go to Austria, where obviously the the main language is German. Apparently, they've got like this European Union clause where you can like study for free, so the tuition doesn't cost you anything. Um, and you know, you can learn German there. And so I was like, this kind of idea like came from a friend or somebody I can't even remember. And I was like, well, that's an that's an amazing idea. Uh, but obviously, I spoke 
uh, no German. So going to a German speaking university, <laughs> not speaking any German, like that was already like, you know, a, a disaster on the wall right there. Uh, and of course I had no money, you know, like the, um, you know, the accommodation, uh, just, just the dorm room was like, um, you know, more than my mom's monthly, monthly income. So I obviously had to find a way to make it work. Um, you know, and I proud to, I'm proud to say that I did end up making it work. Sometimes I wonder myself how, and, um, you know, and I, and I finished at university with pride and not just that I finished at university with pride, but I ended up winning a scholarship to come to Australia and, and, um, you know, did my master's here, which was, which was fantastic. But going back to that entrepreneurial spirit, I guess, you know, looking back, it all, it kind of started to the drive started very early because the drive was really about how get my, how do I get myself out of this? You know, how do I get myself somewhere into a happy place where I no longer have to like listen to mom and dad fighting about who's going to buy me a winter jacket or who's going to like, you know, who's going to pay for whatever. So that was kind of the drive from like very early on. Like I've got to do something. I've got to do something. I've got to do something. But then it still hasn't really, it still didn't really manifest to that entrepreneurial journey for a long time. And when it finally did was by the time I was living in Australia and and I was uh, in, in the corporate world. And, you know, I was one of those people who you could say were successful. You know, I had a good career. I was earning good money. By that point, I didn't have to, thank God, deal with any of the previous hurdles that I had, like, you know, like my job being tied to my visa and, and you know, having a, having to take lower salary. All of that stuff was behind me. But I was in a job where I felt completely brain dead. I felt there was no creativity whatsoever. I didn't like working with my boss. In fact, I really didn't like being around my colleagues either. And I was just like at some point sitting there and I was like, what am I doing here? Like all of this effing hard work all these years, you know, to get myself from where I was to where I am now for this. Like, honestly, no, thank you. And so there was this one day where you know, I just got my, I, it just really all came to me. You know, I, my, my grandma was unwell and I really wanted to go and see her back home. And I had to ask for approval and, you know, and then there was all these politics going on and, and lots of my colleagues just waiting for retirement, you know, being bored to death, but scared to leave. And I was like, you know what, I guess this is it. And so I walked out, I walked out on that job and I resigned and I uh, got home and I told my boyfriend then, uh, husband now, I told, I told my husband, Kristen, I did it. And he's like, you did what? And I said, <laughs> I quit the job. And he was like, what the hell are you doing, Sylvia? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I was like, don't worry. I've, I'm, I've got this all figured out. I'm going to do this, right? And so I was like, okay, I'm ready to start my own business. And, you know, that was the final straw. And I was all enthusiastic and I had my gambler hat on. And I was like, I'm, I'm smart, I'm experienced, like I speak all of these languages, like I've gone through so much tough time in my life, like how hard can this be? Like I've got this. And then, you know, I turned on 
turned on the business. I'm just like saying in like code marks turned on business because really there was just like a simple website and then nothing happened. Literally like nothing. Like not one sale, like nothing. Crickets. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And so I started to do all of these different things and I paid for courses and I was like, oh, maybe it's this, maybe this is the problem, maybe this is the problem. And I ended up doing exactly the same what all of these entrepreneurs do you know, when, when I first meet them, that they're just like, oh, maybe it's this, maybe this is the problem, maybe, you know, and then I just end up like throwing my money away and, and, you know, gambling money on Facebook and Google and email and, you know, all of these different tools and things. And then, you know, six months later, I was just completely overworked. All of my savings that I had saved through, you know, my migrant journey, which was not easy at all. All of that was gone. I was in debt and I had $2,000 left in cash. And I was like, what the hell am I going to do now? And so I kind of knew, you know, I was like, well, this is, this is it really. This is the last chance. And I just felt so crushed and defeated. And it wasn't just because, you know, the former colleagues, like whenever you bump into them, they were like, you know, a few of them got promoted and everybody was like overconfident. And it's like, oh, I'm a director now. And I'm like, whatever, you know. Um, and they were like, so Sylvia, how is this expensive hobby of yours going? You still got that little thing there. Um, you know, I just felt like like complete, complete failure. And you know, my dad, he was like, he was like, you know, I like now looking back, I appreciate he was scared for me, but it wasn't helping other because he was like, Oh my god, Sylvia, what are you gonna do? I was thinking, you know, just take your former boss for lunch. And beg her, if you beg her, she's going to give you your, your job back. And I was like, I'm, I'm not ever begging anyone. Like, you know, this is, this is not me. And so I was like, okay, this is my last chance. And so I locked myself, I locked myself in our spare room and I just like got to work and I, and I was just like putting on the wall, you know, what have I done all of these past six months? What worked? What didn't? How did I do it? How did I not do that? You know, I was just like, drinking coffee after coffee, you know, at some point I was like really buzzed out. And then like early morning, like early hours in the morning, I like step back and I look at the wall and I'm just like, oh my God, like, oh my God. Like the answer has been here in front of me this whole time. I just had no system. I just had no structure to it. That that was it, as simple as it is. Like there was no method to the madness. I was like doing this and that and gambling my money away. But because it wasn't like a system, it wasn't a structure, it wasn't a method, it was hard for me to pinpoint why some things didn't work for me. You know, why some of those things that I implemented that I followed, that the YouTube videos I watched or the or the programs that I purchased, it was hard for me to tweak them because I didn't have a method in how I was going about that. And for me, you know, that was the real turning point. Like that's where I, I guess, finally found that entrepreneurial freedom because, you know, I quit my job in order to be free, but really I locked myself up in this little prison of whatever that was, you know, of no money, fear, anxiety, everything else. But finally, at that, you know, that early hours in the morning, finally, I was like, okay, I'm onto something here. This is why it didn't work, because there is no structure. And I guess that was the beginning of, of it all. That was the beginning of, of the system and the method that we teach, you know, 
it was all about, okay, how do I restructure this and really put that into some methodical order that, you know, eventually I tested and it worked and I tested it again and made it better and better and better. And, and here we are. And now you share it with others as well. Yes. What I'm glad is having asked about the backstory at the end, which I tend to do, um, unless sometimes I feel like, oh, yeah, well, let's get to the backstory right away. Um, but what the reason why I'm glad that I asked it um, now, as opposed to at the beginning, is because seeing, you know, hearing your, your 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 insight and your expertise and your systems and the and the quadrants, wondering where all of that comes from. And it all it all comes from that moment of discovery, um, where all of this had been had been put together, and it was a long time coming. And then the structure hits you, and now, you know, you you you, you made it. No other way to say it, you made it to the other side, um, and it, and it's a commendable story. And uh, and I'm, you know, I, I I I'm 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 not hurting for inspiration on the show. I get a, a lot of inspiration from a lot of people, but what I really appreciate about your story is the significance of it, and just how it's it's distinct from everybody else that, that I've talked to. So uh, I, I really appreciate your, your, your time today. And I really appreciate you, know, you, you sharing with all of us, because I think for, for me and for, for a lot of other people, sometimes it's just one more story is all they need to hear to, for, for it to snap in their head and to say, that's it. That's what I was missing. I think for a lot of people, it is that structure is, you know, for, uh, freedom isn't the ability to just screw off and, and do nothing. Freedom is deciding structure for yourself and, and again, coming to terms with what that has to be. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. It doesn't mean that, you know, it doesn't mean that I get to do nothing all day long or run around in my bikini or go surfing all day long, right? It that doesn't mean that, but it's really, as you say, the the freedom of the choices and the empowerment of understanding what I can do, and I do that on my terms and on my decisions. So, hundred percent, yeah. I could not um, uh, ask for a better way to to wrap this up. So. We're going to wrap this up. Um, Sylvia, it has truly been an honor and a privilege to uh, have you. Well, actually, it's been, it's been uh, we very rarely do we pass like, you know, like the, the hour 20 threshold. There's like you, Greg Halpern, and, and a total night. And I think that's it. Um, so the time that I got to, to have you today, I, it, uh, it really does mean a lot to me on, on a personal level. And I hope uh, it means the same to my audience. So with that, uh, let the audience know how they can uh, find your web presence, uh, check out your content, and um, they'll learn more about you uh, however they may see fit yeah thanks joseph so first of all thank you so much for having me on the show it's been an absolute privilege to be here as well and and be hosted by you i've listened to your podcast before and uh, they're just absolutely fantastic so it's really great for me to listen to the podcast too and still learn because you know i'm absolutely not saying that i've got it all figured out that there's nothing for me to learn like it's it's uh in fact it's the opposite you know i'm still learning myself and yeah, hundred uh, percent. So if anybody wants to get in touch, the probably the best way is uh, sylviamyers.co. That's our website. You've got all of the tools, resources in there. You've got links in there to our Facebook, uh, YouTube channel too. We've got a bunch of uh, free content on YouTube as well. So just yeah, look us up and uh, get in touch. And more than happy to hear how you're using our content and and our tools and strategies, our methods to get to the next level. Excellent. Well, to my audience, you know what's about to happen. I'm about to thank all of you. So it is an honor and a privilege to take this information, use it for my own benefit, and believe me, I do, and then share it with all of you as well. So uh, thank you all for your participation. Sylvia, one more thank you for the road. And to everybody, take care. We will check in as soon as possible. 
Thanks for listening. You might have found this show on many number of platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoy this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. We also want to hear from you, so whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at debutify.com or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next. <laughs>